In this talk, Professor Alan Kelleher from the University of Bath's Centre for Death and Society gives an overview of the changing attitude and behaviour of human beings and other hominids in their response to death, dying and loss over the last two million years. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to tonight's Gulp Lecture here at the University of Bath in Swindon. It's my great pleasure to welcome tonight Professor Alan Kelleher, of the University of Bath. Professor Kelleher is Professor of Sociology and Head of Department of the Department of Social and Policy Sciences and a member of the Centre for Death and Society, which teaches an MA course. Professor Kelleher was previously Professor of Palliative Care at La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia, and also visiting professor at the University of Tokyo in Australian studies. He's written numerous books, in particular on subjects death, dying, and palliative care, and we have great pleasure in his speaking to us tonight on the subject of the history of death and dying. Thank you, Rosemary. I've spent 25 years um, studying uh, death and dying. I, I know death and dying and, and even the underworld, I think, pretty well, but I've never seen anything quite like the Swindon roundabouts. <laughs> I thought that was extraordinary. The Swindon roundabouts have nothing on the underworld. So what I'd like to do today, um, very quickly, uh, over the course of the next 45 minutes, is to give you a, a, a quick overview of how we've become dead and how we've interpreted dying over the last some two million years. What I'd like to do is break the uh, timelines into blocks and talk about the prehistorical period and the pre-industrial period and then industrial death. And industrial death, if you like, you, you can think about as the last 100 years, 150 years, for the sake of argument. Pre-industrial death is everything over the last, except for the last 100 and 150 years, everything in the last 10 to 12,000 years, which is essentially the time since the last ice age. Uh, relatively recent uh, time in terms of geological uh, timescales. And the prehistorical, sometimes also called preliterate, sometimes also called a stone age, is... Uh, that period before the last uh, 12,000 years and extending more or less, depending on who you read, one and a half to two and a half million years ago. Um, and what's interesting about the prehistorical period, if you like, is that many of our contemporary hunter-gatherers, people like the Australian Aborigines or native North American Indians or the Kalahari Bushmen, for example, seem to have death ways, if I might put it that way, that are very similar, certainly very similar to what we know of um, the transitional, what the archaeologists and some anthropologists call the transitional hominids, the transitional species between um, our primate uh, ancestors and modern human beings. So let's, let's start with what causes death. The main cause of death for most of human history was trauma, a snake bite, falling off a cliff. And the most common thing, of course, is 
bleeding to death, either because of childbirth or animals taking you out. Australopithecines, for example, one of the first uh, skulls of Australopithecines, one of the transitional hominids I mentioned earlier, uh, was of great archaeological interest because it had an eagle's claw on its skull. It was an Australopithecines child that clearly had been taken away by a rather large eagle. Um, you'll find when we examine the bones of the Neanderthal man, which is another one of the transitional hominids, that the injuries of nearly all the bones that we find from a Neanderthal man look very much like the injuries of a career rodeo rider or somebody that's been in several car accidents. Most, Australi most Neanderthal uh, hominids have broken at least one bone before the age of seven or eight years of age. They are close-range hunters, which is a very bad thing to be when you don't have very good weaponry. One of the most important reasons for our survival, of course, particularly Homo sapiens, which pretty much had the edge on Neanderthal man, is that we perfected remote killing. Very, very wise step. Neanderthals never quite perfected remote killing. Consequently, they had to actually get right up to the leopard or whatever it is to take it out. Very dangerous um, practice. After the last ice age, people started to settle down and stop roaming, stop following the game, and start to grow grain and to keep animals near them. So they would settle down. The great period of sedentary uh, lifestyle set in and people started to become farmers about 10,000 years ago. But the most important thing about that time, the most important thing about that time is we started to live with animals. And living with animals was a mistake because what it did is we caught nearly all the animal bugs. The first bird flu, for example, chicken pox, is very old. Tuberculosis and leprosy all come from bovine, cow forms. Um, tuberculosis from those kinds of animals we got from drinking their milk. So consequently, infections started to go right throughout the communities. The other problem with catching infections is that when we live together, we all caught it. One of the great advantages of being a hunter-gatherer is if somebody got sick, you could always leave them behind. And they did. But unfortunately, when you're farming and you have a little village there and someone gets sick, everyone gets sick. And because there was no sewerage to speak of, people sat or stood or slept in their own refuse. Not exactly great infection control um, strategies, but that's how it was for nearly 10,000 years, no matter where you were. The great exception were the Americas, where, in general, the farming communities did not live with animals, except for dogs. So consequently, those people, for that same period of time, tended not to have great epidemics of infections that we were used to in Asia and in Europe. Of course, this meant that when we started to visit the Americas, we gave it to them, and they had no immunity. 
Today, of course, people generally don't die of infectious diseases in countries like the United States, Britain, and of course where I'm from, Australia. They die of chronic causes. They die of things like cancer, or cardiovascular disease, or chronic obstructive airways disease, pulmonary diseases, problems of breathing, usually pneumonia, and of course, organ failure. If cancer doesn't get you, organ failure will. One of the two will take you out. Which organ are we talking about? Doesn't really matter. The principal one is the heart, but it could be liver, and it could be kidney. Um, organ failure, or it could be the brain, by the way, which is the other great epidemic that's sweeping the country. Dementia. <clears throat> Still, of course, you have to bear in mind that when I say that this is the main cause, we are talking about places like Britain and the United States. Bear in mind that the bulk of people who die every year, the overwhelming majority of people who die every year, are poor. And the poor still die of the same things, pretty much the same kinds of things anyway, that we used to die of 150 years ago, with one major exception, AIDS. But apart from AIDS, malaria, which is the other great killer of human beings, and tuberculosis, the other great killer of human beings, still is very happy, thank you very much, in places like Africa and large parts of Asia. What this means is that when you look at life expectancy, for most of human history, life expectancy was very, very short. Usually about 16 or 17 years, as far as we can tell. Perhaps 18 years of age, as far as we can tell, among the Australopithecines, the Homo, early Homo sapiens, Homo neanderthalensis, or Neanderthal man, and Homo erectus, the transitional hominids. Bear in mind when they found Neanderthal man in a French cave, you wouldn't think from the term Neanderthal man that we're talking about a 17-year-old, but that's what we were talking about when we found the first one. Now, um, for after we started farming, the life expectancy was usually in the 20s, and that stayed pretty much up to the 18th century as well. Obviously, high infant mortality skews these figures, but nevertheless, people died like flies for most of human history and with about as much dignity. I think it's worth noting that when the church in the medieval period in this part of the world married people and it said, to death do you part, easy peasy. Average marriage would have been somewhere around five to seven years. Not a problem. Even if you made a mistake, anybody can live with somebody for five to seven years. <laughs> hmm? Now, when the minister says, to death do you part, we're talking here maybe half a century, minimum. If that isn't a test of friendship, I don't know what isn't. Obviously, some of these um, life expectancy tables are class-related. Right? So when we talk about short life expectancy in the 20s, we are talking about peasants. But remember that 80% of the European population 
and sometimes more depending on the figure we're talking, the, the time we're talking about. But at least 80% of the medieval period were peasants. It was only 20% who were the aristocracy and who were the middle classes. So when you see books on the history of death, particularly from the French historian Philippe Aries, uh, from the famous uh, English historian uh, John McManus, you have to understand these are bourgeois histories. They are histories of the middle and the ruling classes. They do not apply to the overwhelming majority of the population who were peasants all over the world. And they died right up until pretty much the 19th century in this country in their 20s and sometimes 30s. I remember going to Amadeus, seeing the film, and Mozart died. He died, I think, at the same years, same ages as Jesus Christ, didn't he? Around about 33. And everybody in the film going, oh. And I remember thinking, lucky man. He lived a long time for a middle-class pianist. He did very, very well. Very well. Maybe could have lived a little bit longer. Could have gone for about 40. But he wouldn't have lived much beyond that. But as far as the peasants concerned, Mozart did very well. Today, people live in their 70s and 80s. More and more people are living to 100, in fact. We're now getting to a situation where in countries like Britain and America, people are starting to think, maybe I've lived too long. And it's not a particularly pretty sight, particularly since governments all over the world have only one basic architectural and cultural solution to ageing, the nursing home. And that is not something that people want to go to, despite the fact that countries like ours seem very keen on building them. Who is mainly dying in these figures? Well, I think for most of human history, you'd say that most of the people who die are infants. And particularly at birth, perinatal mortality was huge. Uh, in prehistorical times, and it wasn't a whole lot better through the farming period of the last 10,000 years. In fact, in many parts of Europe, the custom was not to name children until they hit around four or five years of age. No real point. You weren't going to hang on to them for very long anyway. So anything that got to around four or five years of age, you thought, right, that'll be around for at least another 10 or so years. Usually the custom was to dress it as an adult as soon as that happened and name it. So if you have a look at the, the paintings from the medieval period of children, you'll notice that they're often dressed in adult clothes. And the reason for that is the widespread European belief that death was a person that had a taste for children. So if you could get to four or five, you dressed it in as, as an adult, and death, not being very bright, would pass by the child who was dressed in, as an adult. And of course today it's mainly the aged and the poor who die. Over two-thirds of the people who die every year die over the age of 60. They're the figures for places like Britain and the United States. What kind of dying was it? Well, this bit gets a bit tricky to explain. Let's start with the prehistory. 
in prehistory, people died very suddenly. Very suddenly. So there was no sense of dying in the way that we think of dying. We think of dying as you know you've got a terminal illness, for example. You will only have six weeks to live or six months to live. You have a spreading cancer and it's going into your bones and into your liver. You get a sense of that. Or alternatively, your doctor says, I think you've only got another 12 months to live. Our conceptions of dying, our modern conceptions of dying, are very, very different from people who are hunting and gathering and all of a sudden you turn around and your best friend has a boulder sitting on top of him. Or he's been dragged into the jungle by a saber-toothed tiger and you'll never see him again. So the idea of dying that evolved at that time was that it normally happened after you became dead. Let's run that past you again. Dying normally occurred after you died, not before. Becoming dead was the signal that you were about to die. And developed from this a whole series of myths and legends about what happens when you become dead, squashed by the rock or taken apart by the saber-toothed tiger. Well, obviously, you're going to go to another land. The belief in an afterlife is universal, particularly among hunter-gatherers. So then the question was, how do you get there? And if you examine the myths and legends about death or how death entered the world, what happens to souls and, and spirits once they become dead, you realise that they have to undergo a whole range of tests and trials. And the majority probably will not survive. So what happens is you get squashed by the rock. You appear in a land very similar to your own. You know you have to walk because of the myths and the legends that you were taught around the fireside, if you like, or around eating times or before you sleep. You know you have to walk along a certain path. And along that path, you will encounter perhaps some monsters. It depends on the kind of life you lived. In Fiji, for example, if you haven't taken the right tattoos at the right age, you will meet six men with six spears each who will throw them at you. Preferably, you get the tattoos before you die. But if you don't, you meet the six men. Then, if you've not married, you will meet a spinster monster. The spinster monster will try to block your way, grab you and tear you in four, if it can get you. You've also should have planted a set number of pandana trees during your life. And if you haven't planted the set amount of pandana trees, there will be yet another trick when you meet a river and there'll be a boatman there. And the boatman will put an oar for you to sit on and demand that you sit on it. If you're gullible and you sit on it, he'll tip the oar and you'll, you'll go over the cliff. So as you can see, each test and each trial will or has the potential of killing you. And when you die there, you're finished. So your dying begins after you're dead. And a small number of people will be able to survive all the different trials to make it to the Shangri-La, the good place, and stay there for a very long time. Now, there are all variations of that. But the most important point about this particular story is that it is the basis of all the historical religions which came after it. The whole idea of the Christian ideas of heaven, hell, or whatever you want to talk about. The um, Buddhist idea of the pure land, 
All these things have evolved largely from the hunter-gatherer, early prehistoric ideas about dying and dying away from this world and becoming a citizen in the new. One of the interesting things about infection is that once you get infected, you can have, start to have a dying on this side. Because you can start to think, oh, we've seen a number of people with this infection before and they die. And they usually die in three days or five days. So all of a sudden, for the first time in history, you could have somebody who would actually be able to predict their own death. They could actually say, I am dying. They know there is no cure. They know that within three days or five days, they know the bubonic plague will take them out. They know the pattern of skin rashes. They know the pattern of fever and so forth. This means that for the first time in history, you can have a dying. It's on this side as well as the other side. You can participate in your dying. It will be short. It's only three or four days at most, sometimes a couple of weeks. But by and large, most people will have grown up seeing lots of people die. And you would have been one of them. And so you've got a pretty good idea of the difference between getting an infection and being able to recover from it and getting an infection and dying. You know the pathways. You've seen it all before. It also means that the kind of things that dying people say and see and hear near their dying will be unusual. And if, whilst they're infected and feverish and so forth, they see and hear and, and experience unusual things, that too is evidence that they're dying because they're starting to interact with the other world. And that's clear evidence that they're dying. That's the difference between being just merely sick and being dying. That people are being able to interact with the other world even on their deathbeds. So deathbed visions, of course, date from this pastoral age over the last 10,000 years or so. Now, of course, dying is long. If you have cardiac failure, if you have cancer, with the early public health program of screening and early diagnostics, you could be dying for years. I met a woman who was dying of breast cancer for 20 years. 20 years. First, she didn't think she was dying. And then she had one treatment after the next, and each treatment knocked the cancer back better than the last one. But eventually it came back, so they tried something else, and they kept trying something else, and they kept trying something else. 20 years down the track, they finally ran out of everything. And she started to really think that, well, that's it for me. And she took about a year to die after that. Dying can be a very long time, and some people never have a dying. Remember that a lot of this stuff is also in your head. People can have a very serious illness and not be dying. Some people can have no illnesses and be dying, such as people who commit suicide, for example. So today, dying can take a very long time compared to the way it's been in the past. Also, the company you keep when you're dying. Obviously, dying in prehistoric times, if a rock falls on you, they manage to get the rock off you, then they decide to bury you. Now, obviously, they know that your dying is beginning now. And you're going to have lots of tests and trials, right? So the idea is that the group is going to help you. So they start to bury spears. You can never have too many spears against the spinster monster. 
So you bury spears, you can bury all sorts of weaponry, there's food and drink for the journey. And you may remember now, of course, the Egyptians took this to an unprecedented um, level where they buried whole groups of servants, armies, soldiers, all sorts of paraphernalia into their tombs so that to accompany them to the other world. That is not an Egyptian thing. That is a transitional hominid thing. That is at least a million years old. The Egyptians had more money and uh, more time and more slaves than your normal nomadic groups. So they got the Rolls-Royce um, grave good. In the medieval period, where people lived together in villages uh, and small towns, the most important thing to note is that dying was a regular thing. And there was no reality TV anymore. There was no reality TV at all, no TV at all. And dying became a source of entertainment. And one of the interesting things, particularly in the medieval period, and this happened in, in Britain, uh, in England, as well as uh, Western Europe, is that when somebody died and they knew that they were dying in the, in the next, say, 24 hours, they could have up to 100 people surrounding their house to look in. Now, clearly, if you're interested in God, the closest person to God is going to be somebody just about to die. So it's really important, just in case God and the dying person has a little word with each other, that you're there to catch it. So hearing the last words of the dying, seeing the dying person, is also um, a fantastic thing to be near because you might actually learn something. You might learn that God doesn't like the colour red, for example. You could learn all sorts of valuable information. And so people used to flock to these dying scenes to glean some kind of idea of what was in store for them. It was also an opportunity to see whether a person died well or not. And that was another way in which you could see whether a person had led a good life or not as well. Because a good death usually signalled a good life. Of course, exposure to death and dying was very common throughout history. You're wandering around in nomadic groups of 15 to 40 people. Anyone who dies, you're going to see them. Anybody who becomes dead, you're going to see it. And it's exactly the same in farming communities. For most of history, the exposure is very common. <clears throat> Bear in mind that even in England, 80% of people <clears throat> lived in only one room at best right up until the turn of the 20th century. Most people did not have plumbing or sewerage at that time. We lived in one room maybe two if you were lucky. And normally those rooms were not just one person, but whole families. You saw everybody urinate, defecate, have sex and die. The people who lived in that situation knew more about the body than you can even dream of today. They were experts on death and dying. Today, death, the exposure to death and the exposure to everything else is uncommon. We have rooms, so many rooms in the houses. Maybe a room for each person in the house. There's even a little room where there's a toilet in there where you can go and close it off and you can be there privately. Remarkable idea. Unprecedented. 
Only in the last hundred years have you been able to go to the toilet by yourself. Extraordinary thing. Extraordinary thing. Now, for the first time in human history, parents can have sex without their children watching. Extraordinary thing. Extraordinary thing. Can't imagine such a thing. So these days, it is uncommon to see someone die, and it's even uncommon to see a dead body. If I'm foolish enough to tell people I study death and dying, which I don't do at parties anymore, because I don't, <laughs> because I don't get to eat anything, I always get people coming up to me of all ages saying, you know, I've never seen a dead body and I'm 52 years of age. How interesting, I say, how interesting. <clears throat> so when I used to do that, it was, it was uh, fairly common for me to encounter these kinds of people. How did people prepare for death? Well, obviously, in the Stone Age and the prehistorical period, they prepared for death with religious significance, religious preparations. They were particularly concerned about meeting problems in the netherworld and appeasing the different gods. Don't forget that before historical religions, most uh, religions were polytheistic or animistic. There were many gods, many spirits. So a lot of the preparations were religious. When uh, dying became a deathbed thing, and historical religions like Christianity and Judaism and so forth, Buddhism, Islam started to dominate, then, of course, there was basically one God to please, and religious preparations were also important, particularly things like prayer and uh, certain rituals and certain visitation from clergy. Today, most of the preparations in contemporary society are material. If you do a head count of people who are dying, um, and I've done s several, and my colleagues have done many around the world, you will find that the major preparation for death that people make is material. It is either legal, they make a will, for example, or it's financial. Um, and that includes the working class. You'll find that working class people, for example, tend not to take out big superannuation schemes. They can't afford them or they're not offered them. But many of the poorest working class will have an emergency bank account, you'll find. The emergency bank account is endemic among the working class, not only in this country but in mine, where just in case your daughter becomes pregnant, you might need a thousand quid down the side there, an emergency fund. Or what if one of you drops dead? How the hell are you going to afford a funeral? So often, the working class will have even these kinds of funds. Religious preparations haven't disappeared. They do concern about a third of the population not threatened with death and concern, can concern up to two-thirds of the population once threatened with death. Let me run that past you again. If you ask people of any age, have you made religious preparations for your dying? Only about a third of people will say yes. And you ask them, what do you do? Oh, well, I attend service every Sunday. I pray specifically that I'll have a peaceful death or I make offerings around this area or I make sure that the priest will visit me on my deathbed or whatever it is. But once there's been a diagnosis of a life-threatening illness, that figure doubles. That figure doubles. So people with a life-threatening illness will then start to attend church, will start to pray. This doesn't necessarily mean they become religious, I have to tell you. The data is a bit more complicated than that. 
Because when you ask these people why they do that, they do it for moral support. They do it for social support, not to change their fate in the afterlife, not to reconcile with God, but because they get a social comfort from religious attendance and visitation and prayer. So it's a very social reason why that uh, figure jumps. Nevertheless, overall, material um, preparations have the day. It's also important to note that one of the key reasons um, we have so much legal uh, work around death and dying is because relationships have become sentimental. Now, this is one of the hardest um, things to explain to anyone. Even when I, I try to get this across to my students, it's extremely difficult. What you have to understand is that for most of human history, liking each other was neither here nor there. It's irrelevant. For most of human history, we have a value on each other. He has a strong back. He can plough more fields than he can over here. This is a valuable man. He is worthy of respect. This man over here has survived five battles with the neighbouring village and lived to tell the story. This is a man of worthy of respect. This is his value. This woman has fantastic childbearing hips. Everybody is aghast in the village in awe of this woman with childbearing hips. She will attract more pigs than a lot of you when she gets married. This is the way people thought for most of human history. It is only when we started to think about the rise of sentiment, which in fact the aristocracy and the middle classes grabbed well before the rest of us, but which modernity developed in, uh, if you like, the image of the middle classes and the aristocracy in, in the last 100 years, do we find that people then pick partners on the basis of what they look like. So I see the back row of young people there. They will go down the street if they already don't have partners, eventually looking for someone who looks good because they're stuck in a society of strangers. They don't know anybody outside the family, so they have to go to a dance or they have to go to a pub or they have to go to university to meet their future partner or two or three or four. But for 500 years earlier, you knew who you were going to marry by the time you were four. Your parents told you you were going to get married. So, what does this mean? On the deathbed, it means this. If, for most of human history, if I go back, say, 500 years as my example, I'm dying on my deathbed, and I say to my wife, look, when I'm dead, I want the horse to go to Bob. I want the saddle to go to Jack. And I want my boots, my riding boots, to go to Bill. It or those did. That's exactly where they ended up. Now, relationships are based on love, sentiment. And what we have found in those kinds of relationships is when I'm on my deathbed and I say, I want the horse to go to Bob, the saddle to go to Jack, and my boots to go to Bill, my wife is more than likely going to say, sure, whatever you say. And the moment I'm dead, I think I'll keep those boots. Always coveted those. They're very nice, thank you very much. And that's, in fact, what started to happen. 
So just historically, at a time when love was at its height, trust evaporated. Sorry to tell you this. And what this means is the lawyers came in. And the will was designed as a post-mortem way of controlling the wishes of the dying. Because the dying could no longer depend on duty in its principal relationships. When sentiment entered the bargain, you could never tell who did what after you're dead. And in fact, even now, you'll see all the time the squabbles when somebody dies. It's endemic. Very, very modern phenomenon. Mourning, the idea of grieving in public, for example, was always very common. Where else would you do it if you were a hunter-gatherer anyway? There was no privacy, no such thing. Not a, no, no such thing. And pre-industrial times, the same. No such thing. No privacy. You've got one room to do everything in. If you're going to feel grief, you'll feel it in front of everyone. But at a time when we build houses so we can hide from each other, particularly for things we don't want others to see, things which are uncomfortable, things which we consider to be private, then our emotions also exist in those rooms. And it basically means that grief now, and this is a deliberate pun, has been in the closet for a long time. The modern experience of grief is not appreciated. You can have some grief. I'll let you have a little bit of grief. If you lose your husband or wife, people say, hey, you can, be, you can have a little grief, maybe three months. Have three months. But if you still burst out crying after two years at the mention of your lost husband, faux pas, madam, faux pas. This is not the way it's done. And this is the problem in middle-class society all over the world. This is not just a British thing. This is an Australian thing, and an American thing. It's even a Japanese thing. It is endemic to middle-class society that puts an accent on privacy. There are some things we simply don't discuss at the pub. Grief and bereavement's one of those things. The fact that grief is forever is a very difficult thing to negotiate when you have a society that doesn't appreciate that fact. How do you know you're dying? Well, for most of human history, most people knew they were dying. If you were one of the transitional hominids and you ended up with a spinster monster in front of you, you know you must be dying because you can tell. The spinster monsters don't normally exist in your day-to-day -day living. In the medieval period, of course, as I said, because you'd seen lots of people die, by the time you were 16, you probably would have witnessed anywhere between 6 and 10 deaths by the time you were 16 years of age. When your time comes, you've got a damn good idea. It's your time. In fact, even in America, if you're looking at the diarists of the 19th century, it was considered that dying people who did not know they were dying were considered stupid. That's the word that's often used. Ignorant people. Only ignorant people didn't know, couldn't read their own bodily signs. But today, no. Today, there's no way you're supposed to know you're dying. You don't. You have to get told by other people. If, for example, let me give you an example. If I'm sitting at a cafe at the University of Bath in Claverton Down, and you see me there, I remember you from the public lecture. How are you, Alan? You take a seat, sit down at the table by me, uninvited, and you say to me, <laughs> how have you been? And I said, well, uh, fine, fine. There's only one small thing. Um, I've discovered I'm dying. And, of course, you rightly become concerned, and you think, 
Really? When did you, when did you, uh, when did this, when did this happen? And I said, well, I was watching um, Mock the Week on the BBC on TV last week. And during the ad break, I thought to myself, I'm dying. At this point, you say to yourself, look, I have to go. It's been really good seeing you, Alan. Very nice. I hope I have to go. I have to go. Nice to see you. However, let's rerun the tape. You come and see me. You see me at Claverton Down at the cafe. I'm drinking coffee. You say, hi, Alan. You pull up a seat, uninvited. And you say, how are you? And I say, well, look, not, not too good, actually. I, th I think I'm dying. And you say, really? How do you know this? So this is the way we do it. Actually, I was in the shower about three months ago, and I felt a lump. Good. Number one. Number one, we've got to get to about five points here. Lump, very good. Yes. So I went to the GP. I've got to get a point for a GP. Very good. The GP took a look at the lump, was very concerned. Sent me for tests. Tests. Love tests. Got to get a point for that. The test came back. I went to see the specialist. He was very concerned. Turns out that the lump is a secondary. It's not the primary. Actually, the cancer has spread. Spread, alarm word. Number four. Four points here. Finally, the coup de grace. The doctor says, Alan, this is so serious, even with treatment. I don't expect you to live longer than two years. You have about a 50% chance of living two years. Wonderful. Prognosis. Five points. If you don't believe me, you're on drugs. I've got absolute credibility now. I'm dying and you can't take it from me. But I've got to jump those hoops. It's called, in my field, the social construction of dying. That's how it occurs. If it doesn't come through that way, you can't just go around telling people you're dying. No credibility. Two centuries ago, if the doctor said you were dying, you'd laugh. What would, that, what would a doctor know? And you'd be right, by the way. Doctors know <laughs> bugger all. <clears throat> you want to stay away from doctors. They used to kill you in the old days. But, uh, well, some people still think they do. But two centuries ago, certainly medicos knew nothing about this kind of thing. And people had a much better experience. Medicos probably came from middle-class families. Again, they wouldn't have seen many deaths. Most of you would have been peasants. You would have seen five or six deaths before you were 16. You think a doctor can tell you something about when dying people are dying? You would know best. The reverse today. Where do people die? Well, of course, in hunter-gatherer society, prehistoric society, people died wherever they stood. In medieval times, during the Middle, e Middle Ages, Uh, and in all farming communities, really, people tended to die at home. Short of the other piece of history which we're not factoring in here is military history. A lot of men did not die at home if they were warriors, of course. So we'll just factor that out for the moment. But short of uh, warrior history or military history, most people tended to die at home, particularly women, uh, and particularly women in childbirth. Today, of course, the majority of people over two-thirds of people will die in a hospital or an aged care facility, probably a nursing home. 
And even many of those who die in a nursing home will be transferred to a hospital in the last 24 hours and will be declared dead in the hospital. Less than 5% die in hospices in this country. So hospices are not a big place where people die. So it's mainly the hospital and nursing home where people die. And finally, who's got the control over dying? Well, as I said, your chances of surviving the tests and trials of the netherworld depend on how well your community stuffs that grave with spears and food and drink and all the other goodies that you will need on your journey. So the community really controlled your chances. If you had no friends, you end up in the grave with nothing, you're in trouble. In the, middle, the medieval period, of course, the self had a certain amount of control. Because you were alive for a few days before you die, you could at least call a clergy person. You could say some prayers on your own behalf. So you had some control. But the community also had quite a bit of control over how your dying was. Today, it is not the community that has much control at all, or even the self, but it's staff supervised. Obviously, if you're in a nursing home or you're in a hospital, it will be the doctors and nurses who will determine the shape of how you die. Not a pretty picture, I can tell you. A recent study of an American geriatric hospital showed that at least 15% of the people there who died in one year died screaming. And that was a large US hospital in good condition. Quite a few people don't even know they're dying because of the rising rate of dementia, which goes up every decade after you're 70. It reminds me of that old... Uh, I'm not sure if it's an apocryphal story of what old George Bush's father went into a nursing home one day doing his visit and came across a man in a Zimmer frame. And he bent down to that man and he said, do you know who I am? And the man in the Zimmer frame said, no, but if you ask the nurse to get the charge desk, she'll tell you. <laughs> okay. Most of these changes have come about for two or three basic reasons, which very few scholars disagree on. One is the rise of public health measures. The idea that you're no longer standing in your own refuse made a huge difference in the 20th century. We are extremely lucky, I tell you. If you work in this game, you don't know how lucky you are until you read the history of public health. The 20th century, if you had to pick a century to live in, this is the one to be. Clean water, sewerage systems, good veterinary care for your animals, whose meat you will eat, the toilet, the dishwasher, the tap. <laughs> wonderful things. Wonderful things. And most of this, including the fact that houses didn't fall on you, great cause of death as well. In the old days, you want to build a house, anybody just built it. You want to build a house, we'll do it this weekend. No worries. You live in it. In October, when the winds come, down the house goes, half your family dies. Very common thing. Safe housing. Occupational health and safety. A lack of wars. All of these things count for a lot in being able to live long, healthy lives. 
the bulk of infectious diseases in the 20th century were controlled by these public health reforms, not by immunization programs. Immunization programs just finished it off. They're important to have, but the major inroad were public health reforms. Infectious diseases, isolation, whole range of practices, very, very important. The second uh, thing that is responsible for a lot of these changes is the fact that in the last 200 years, communities have weakened, particularly because of urbanisation and industrialisation. There has been a mass migration into cities for work, particularly for work. And what that has done is it has weakened community ties, it has strengthened family ties, it has strengthened family ties, but it has made people dependent on a single income, often single income, nuclear family, which are very prone to anything. In the old days, when dad died on the farm, it didn't mean a damn thing. Because you shared that farm with 15 or 20 other people, it made no economic difference to you. But when dad died and he was the sole income, you had it. You could have been destitute, which is a key reason, by the way, for the rise of insurance, which was originally developed for the families of clergymen, incidentally. The church was ahead on that one. <laughs> um, so those kinds of things also meant that with the public health changes, with the nuclear family, with more rooms, there was a rise of privacy. There is a process where people started to think that privacy was a good idea, was around about the same time they thought speaking quietly was a good idea. You know, in the old days, you yelled at everybody. Now, if you yell, you're either drunk or you're working class. The middle classes like to be quietly spoken. And that's not an accident, because they live in houses with small rooms and they're not far away from each other. There's a whole range of architectural reasons for some of our behaviour as well. So gentrification is the term given to becoming more middle class. And being more middle class means that areas of, that are upsetting, particularly sex, madness, death, drug and alcohol, and funnily enough, after World War II, rock and roll, um, became sources of irritation for the middle classes. This also meant that due to the separation of work and family, partners were chosen for romantic reasons, children lived longer, and you became more attached to them. In the old days, children, once they reached about eight or nine, you sent them off to do work in the farm, or you sent them down the mines. But then as people became, as they moved from peasant to clerk to professional, their education was longer. So they started to leave home at 16, then 18. Then they went to university. And of course, as everybody now knows, children stay at home until their 40s. <laughs> There have been a number of books. I mean, this, this area is full of major books, and you're, I won't go through um, too many of them, but I will say a couple of things. That many of the books in the history of death and dying are, in fact, as I said at the beginning of this lecture, books that have charted the responses and attitudes to death of the middle classes. You want to be very wary about this. There's a famous historian called... Uh, Philippe Ayres, who wrote Western Attitudes to Death. He also wrote a follow-up book called At the Hour of Our Death. 
uh, even McManus, uh, Pat Jallen, who's a famous Australian historian who's written a lot about the history of death. Nearly all of these people work off diarists and art and archives. These are literary histories. These are not the histories of many of the people we've spoken about here tonight. So when you open any book in, of history of death or dying, always check that it's truly a social history and not an aristocratic history. The other two books that you're likely to have come across is Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's On Death and Dying. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, uh, of course, was a Swiss psychiatrist who uh, had a career in America, and she developed a stage theory of dying, which the grief and bereavement people uh, embraced. And it's the idea that when you die, you go through stages. In fact, indeed, if you grieve, you go through stages. And it begins with something like denial, and then you go... Who can tell me the next one? Anger. Next one. Bargaining. Very good. Next one. Depression. And finally, acceptance. You're always reading that. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross never said you had to go through them all. But if you doubt that, please come to my office. I will show you the reference. She does say you go through them all and you get to acceptance. It's never been empirically uh, verified. There have been numerous attempts to replicate Kubler-Ross's so-called study of dying, and no stages have been found. Furthermore, there is no sample description. She interviewed 200 people, but we don't know if they were 200 New York Jews. We don't know if they were 50 African Americans. We have no idea whether they were young people or old people. But we do know nearly all the interviews occurred in hospital, places away from home, places where people feel separated from their loved ones and their attachments. And there's no doubt that they may have been grieving, but it's not clear at all whether they were grieving because they were dying or grieving because they weren't at home. And there's one other problem. When you have a stage theory, exceptions become abnormal. If, there's, if, if teenagers have certain stages and you're watching those teenagers, and your teenager isn't going through that stage, you start to worry they might be abnormal. Stage theories do that to you. They muddle your, they muddle your mind, and you start to think, well, everybody should go through these stages. If they don't go through the stages, have we got a problem here? One of the interesting things about this particular stage theory is that it's not new. She actually borrowed it. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross actually borrowed it from a, a psychiatrist called Bowlby, who noted infants' reactions when mothers left the room. First they would deny. Then they become very angry. Then they start bargaining. I think if I sit up straight and stop crying and look good, maybe mum will come back. Then they become depressed and then they accept. It's very interesting. If you look at the child psychology literature, how striking that stage theory seems to relate to the dying. Did Kubler-Ross think dying people like children? Who knows? But what I do say to you is that when you read books like Kubler-Ross or any books that talk about stage theory, make sure you're not in one yourself. And finally, there's a man who wrote a Pulitzer Prize book that you may come across, Ernst Becker, The Denial of Death. This is the idea that the Americans are in love with psychoanalysis, not something that ever took off in Australia, the wrong culture, I think. But, uh, basically, he was of the view that you could no more look at the sun than you could look at your own death. Um, actually, we can look at the sun now, Ernest, and uh, we don't have any problem with this. We've got the technology for it. 
And also, just because I'm not thinking about death doesn't mean I'm in denial. It may be I'm concentrating on the meal I've got before me. I am, for example, not thinking about the chairs that you're sitting on. This does not mean I'm a chair-denying person. Death is not necessarily one of those things that just because I don't think about, I'm in denial. Psychoanalysis works reasonably well on a good day, if you believe it, on individuals. Once you start classifying whole countries and cultures in uh, psychological defence terms, you have a problem. Because what happens is you override a culture's own explanation for its behaviour with your theory about why they do things. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is called ethnocentrism, applying your standards to somebody else's with no empirical basis. It's also the basis of prejudice. Very bad animal to let into your home. I think that pretty much gives you the two million years and it gives you everything you need to know about the literature on death and dying. I think that's good value for money, don't you? <laughs> Thank you very much.